1 Corinthians, last verse of chapter 12, and then into chapter 13. And the title of the message this morning is Love the Excellent Way. Love the Excellent Way. The scripture says, But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show unto you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffers long and is kind. Charity envies not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. We won't try to cover the whole chapter this morning. But I want you to note as we pick up uh, at the end of chapter 12, the chapter uh, divisions are man-made, so it really would have been more skillfully done, I think, to put verse 31 of chapter 12 into 13, because Paul had just been talking about in chapter 12, as we noted last time, the great beauty of the doctrine of the body of Christ. Um, I was moved by chapter 12, I hope that you were, when we saw last week how that the Lord has united His people to Himself, that we are the body of Christ, that we have a glorious union with Jesus Christ, and then we together who are born of God's Spirit, we, something common has happened to us, something wonderfully amazing has happened to us. God has saved us, God has opened our hearts to the Lord Jesus, God has made us to drink into one spirit, as chapter 12 and verse 13 says. And then the function of the body, how that every member of the body is, is needed and is valuable in God's eyes, just as the Lord designed the human body with the eyes and the toes and the fingers and the feet and the liver and the lungs and all the rest, it all has a function. So God has designed His body, the spiritual body, to function in a way that cares one for another, that edifies one another and builds each other up. So almost the climax was, if one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member honored, be honored, all the members rejoice with it. And so this glorious beauty of different roles, different functions, different giftings, but all in the body, they're placed by the Lord to serve each other and to build each other up. A beautiful picture, isn't it? A beautiful design of the Lord. 
But there's something so important here. There's one crucial ingredient that even though the body is designed by the Lord, it's made by the Lord so skillfully, yet the function of the body will be greatly hindered without one essential ingredient. And you know what it is. It's love. The love of God in our hearts. The love of God exercised in our lives, in our actions, and in our thoughts. As glorious as the design of the body is, as wonderful as the design of it is, it will be greatly hindered without much love. And the church at Corinth is, a, is case uh, A for that, is, is exhibit A for that, is it, aren't they? We've gone through this book, we have seen that. A church that was highly gifted, but yet was greatly hindered in the effectiveness of their gifts. And one of the great reasons was a lack of love. A church that was high on gifts, but low on love. And really, another way to say that is they were low on spiritual maturity. As we mature in the Lord, a great part of that maturity is a deepening of love. A deepening of the practice of love. So Paul, after talking about these gifts, remember, not all are apostles, not all are prophets, not all are healers. So verse 31, he says, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show unto you a more excellent way. A couple of different ways that people look at this passage of Scripture. One way to look at it is, is Paul is, is almost kind of mocking them or a little sarcastic. You guys are coveting the best gifts. You just want to be seen. You want to be heard. And that was part of their sentiment. And so he's saying, but I'm going to show you a more excellent way. I'm going to show you the way of love. Quit focusing so much on your gifts. Focus more on love. And that could be what Paul is saying here. Or it could be Paul is saying in a good way, hey, covet the best gifts. Covet the most useful gifts. And I'm going to show you the way those gifts will function well is through love. I don't have a strong opinion either way on how that verse, I'm not sure where it is. But the point is, Paul is emphasizing love here, that love is the excellent way. That all the gifts that you have will not be well practiced without great love. So it is right for us, it is right for us to have a desire for gifts, right? For a desire to be equipped by God in order to be useful in His service, but it must be accompanied by love. So if one is just desiring gifts so that they can have the spotlight, so they can be seen and be noticed, that's the opposite of what Paul's talking about. But it's right to say, Lord, equip me. Lord, if there's some gift that I need, or your body needs, and you're going to supply it through me, give me that, Lord, equip me for that, but only as it's accompanied by love. Only as it's accompanied by love, so that my focus is truly on edifying truly on spiritually building up others round about me. So it's not wrong to want gifts, but it's wrong to want them for the wrong reasons. It's wrong to want them just for self-serving purposes. It's right to want to be equipped so that I can be more useful in the kingdom of God to build up others for God's glory. The church at Corinth, as we know, And this love chapter is sandwiched right in between this whole discussion on spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 has already talked about it, as we've seen. Chapter 14 gets into more technicalities of how the gifts are supposed to work. But right in the middle of that is chapter 13, which is love. You pull love out, and it's nothing pretty. you got a lot of gifts and a lot of problems. But you put love in there. You sweeten it with love. You sanctify it with love. And then you have a beautiful functioning body for the glory of God and for the mutual edification. So the church at Corinth, I won't go over all of the problems. We've 
done that a lot of times, right? Divisions, that, that needless divisions, not helpful divisions. Remember in chapter 8, the flaunting of Christian liberty? I don't care if brother so-and-so who used to be a pagan is offended by me eating this meat offered to idols or not. It's my liberty, and I'm going to do what I want to do, and what my stomach wants trumps his edification. So a flaunting of spiritual gifts, an abuse of spiritual liberty, a, a, um, a, an abuse of spiritual liberty because of lack of love. Saw in chapter 11, the rich despising the poor, thinking little of the poor. We don't need you. Maybe in chapter 12, some of the same idea. I don't need you. I'm the hand. I don't need you feet. I'm the eye. I don't need you other part of the body. I'm something special. And so Paul the Holy Spirit through Paul brings this powerful, powerful teaching on love. If you've been at church much, you probably have heard this chapter before, haven't you? Act like you've never heard it before. Act like you've never heard it before. And look at what he says. Look at this introduction, these first three verses. Wow. The essential ingredient of love. Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels... And don't have love? I am like a sounding brass, probably like a, a, a gong, a, just a, a banging gong, a brass gong, just dang, 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 over and over again. Or a tinkling cymbal, this shrill, discordant sound that just goes again and again and again and again. Now, some of you parents, you have toys that somebody gave your child for their birthday, and it has some little tune or some loud thing, and you, about the third time you heard that, you're like, that's too much. And somehow the batteries accidentally got lost. Nobody knows how that happened, but they did, right? Because you just can't handle it. It's just like, oh, not that loud, banging, off-key noise again and again and again. All right, get that picture in your mind, and notice what Paul says. Oh, though I'm gifted, though I have the gift of tongues, and apparently the Corinthian church really put high value on the gift of tongues. This ability to speak in another language that they had not previously learned and they could declare the mighty works of God like happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And they were impressed by this gift. And it is an impressive gift, but they were apparently it's like a pride thing. Paul says, though I speak with the gift of tongues. And then he gets a little exaggerated. Though I can speak like an angel. I mean, though I had a tongue beyond just human language, but I can speak angelic language. I could just blow you all away. And remember, the Corinthians were so, their culture was so enamored with Greek oratory, these powerful speeches from Greco-Roman culture and philosophy. They were just moved by these speeches. And Paul says, though I could wow you and blow you away with my speech, though I could hold a crowd spellbound with my elo- uh, elocution, I can't even speak, so I don't have the, I'm not eloquent, <laughs> Though I could just blow you away. Though I had a great gift from God. A gift from God to speak in tongues. But I don't have love. I'm just like that loud, discordant sound, that clanging brass, this brass that just bang, bang, bang. It's a gift. It's being used, but it's not blessing anybody. It's a gift. It's being used, but it's not spiritually edifying the body. And so Paul is obviously saying here, gifts without love, not so special. Gifts with love, glorious blessing. But there must be love. 
Then he says in verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy. So here's a revelatory gift. Here's a gift, as we noted earlier in chapter 12, where special knowledge of God was revealed to someone and they could declare the will of God. Something previously wasn't known, they can speak the will of God. He goes on and says, and then, I underst- what if I can understand all mysteries and I had all knowledge? Now listen, Paul is not knocking the knowledge of God. Knowledge is something we're to be growing in. We're to be growing in the knowledge of God. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians tells us the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly. So there's no virtue in being ignorant of the word of God. There's no, earth, uh, uh, there's no virtue in being a babe in the scriptures when we've had more time to, than being babes, right? When we should have advanced farther. So God calls us to grow in knowledge. I remind you of that today. God calls you to dig into his word, to be diligent, to labor, to know what this book says. That you may know God better. That you may know more of the depths of his salvation and of his love. That you may know his will and how to live and that you may trust him and be encouraged and have peace and be built up and equipped to serve him. God calls us to knowledge. There's no place for any of us to be lazy in the scriptures. That's, I think it's one of the great sins of the church is laziness in the scriptures. Paul said it, or whoever wrote Hebrews said it in Hebrews, you ought to be teachers, you're still eating the milk, drinking the milk when you have meat. So this is not a knock on knowledge. It's a knock on knowledge without love. Paul says, look, man, I mean, what if I could explain to you everything about Revelation? <laughs> what, what, if I could, what if I could write volume upon volume of deep, glorious theology? What if I could out-argue every pagan cultic group from the Scriptures and I had all the right arguments and all the right way to do it, and I had a perfectly logical mind, I could just blow them out of the water, which would be a great gift. But if I don't have love accompanying it, I am nothing. We're not talking about things that are not great. It's great to have gifts. It's great to have knowledge. But without love, they're almost shocking statements. I'm nothing. I have nothing, and I am nothing. And it profits me nothing. If I have all this knowledge and all these gifts, but I don't have love. Hopefully by now your heart's crying out, Lord, give me love. Lord, give me love. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the guy who has a bunch of head knowledge, but it's not in here. I don't want to be the guy who has a gift, but I'm not using it well because I don't have have love. Well then, though I have all faith, so this is a special gift of faith, not just saving faith that all God's people have, but though I have special faith so that I can remove mountains, probably again kind of hyperbolic language, in other words, I can do great things in God's service, great attainments, great accomplishments, but without love, without charity. I'm nothing. If you thought that was something, look at verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity or love, it profits me nothing. Now this is the hardest one of all, isn't it? Because it seems like on the surface, externally, that is love. I give all my goods to feed the poor. So I do some amazing act. It's really amazing. Or even, for some reason, give my body to be burned and sacrificed. I give up my, I lay down my whole life. But Paul envisions the possibility of someone doing 
great religious deeds externally that are even impressive to the human eye, and yet it not be worth anything because it's not accompanied by a heart of love. This reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. Look in Matthew chapter 7. You'll know this passage, no doubt. I read it again this week, and again it shocked me. I was like, this is, this is really heavy stuff Jesus is saying here. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, which we know part of the will of the Father is love. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now this is shocking, folks. These are people who have some pretty good doctrine, right? Because they're calling Jesus Lord. That's a great start on doctrine. You are Lord. You are the sovereign. We bow before you. We know who that you are. But he says there's going to be many in that day, in this final day of judgment, that, that call him Lord and even have done religious deeds, have, have even prophesied they were gifted. They cast out demons. They did many wonderful works. And then he says, I'm going to say, get away. I don't know you, you that work iniquity. How do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of someone who would bestow all their goods to feed the poor, would do all these religious deeds, and yet still not be approved by the Lord? Now, look for a case in point at the man we know as Saul of Tarsus, right? Before we know him as Paul the Apostle. Saul of Tarsus had tremendous religious zeal. I mean, it's kind of sad. He was more zealous than some true believers are. He, would, he had no problem traveling to different cities at great effort and great uh, toil to persecute believers. In all this, he thought he was doing righteous. In his unbelieving, unregenerate state, he thought that by his outward external keeping of the law that he was earning points with God. He thought that he was building up a bank account of righteousness before the Almighty so that he would be covered, he would be in good shape. You know, that's possible. That's, that's what many people do. They, they, they have, know that idea there's a God out there, and, and I'm kind of not all the way right, and so I need to, you know, get myself right with him. And so by tremendous sacrifice, by tremendous zeal, by great devotion, I can somehow get enough with God. You know that men might be impressed by that, but God is not. Because the only Works and deeds that God receives are those that come from a heart that's trusting in the merits of Jesus. See, Galatians 5 verse 6 tells us this, that circumcision doesn't count, none nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. See, true love comes from a heart of faith in Christ that's trusting in the cross as our standing with God, that's trusting in Jesus as our perfect and solid foundation. And then the works that are received by God come from that kind of a heart with a motive of true love to the glory of God and to the good of others. So it's, it's really amazing. People can be very self-deceived with religious things. I am a good person. I'm doing lots of good things. Or maybe somebody trying to escape guilt. I mean, I'm going to write a big, big, big check here because I got some stuff I need to pay off with God. 
or I'm going I'm to impress people, or you know, whatever. Our hearts can be so deceived. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So the point is this, is that true love comes from a heart that has been shown and convicted of our sins. We've been brought by grace to trust in the merits of Jesus. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And from that faith, we offer unto God works, yes, deeds of great sacrifice and great love and great, and great gifts we trust of, of, and, and great knowledge. But we do all that with a motive to the glory of God and to the good of those round about us. So I just say that even for the unbeliever, this is possible, but even for the believer, right, even the true believer, Brothers and sisters, listen, we can go to church, we can hear a sermon, we can sing politely, we can say, nice sermon, Brother Timothy, and we can leave and be deceived, right? You think, I've done my little check mark. Where is our heart? Yeah, where is our heart? That's what, that's what Paul's aiming at here. He's, he's zeroing in the laser beam on the hearts at the church at Corinth. Quit looking at how impressive your gifts are. Quit comparing yourself to someone else and how, what, what, what great knowledge do you have. Quit trying to impress God or buy him off. Where is your heart? Where's true love? Where's true love? The love of the Lord. So we, let me just say this to exhort us, we dare not just admire this chapter theoretically. We, I mean, look, it's great poetry. I mean, who cannot read this? Beareth all things, believeth all things. It's just so poetic, it falls off the tongue. It's just, man, who cannot say, that's a great chapter. You know, you can read 1 Corinthians 13, say, that's amazing, and not be changed by 1 Corinthians 13. But we can know this is a high ideal, this is a, a great way to live, and yet not be moved to live it. So that's, I think, the importance of these first three verses. This, this, let's, let's really get this. Let's really seek after this. Let's really pursue this. Now, before we jump in to the next part, let me just say this. When we talk about love, a lot of misconception, as you know, in, in the world about love. 1 John 4, 4, 19, God is love. God is the author of love, true, holy love. Love is native to God. No one taught him how to be loving. God is love. God of his own nature pours himself out. First in the Trinity, God the Father pouring himself out in love to the Son and the Spirit, all the rest. Father, Son, and Spirit delighting in each other, loving each other. God has been loved from all eternity. And then God has chose to create a world where he knew that sinners would fall. And God chose to share himself and to pour himself out for sinners in his own personal sacrifice have a relationship with them and to draw them into his love and to share his love with them. God is love, folks. God is love. And God's standard of love and his definition of love, that is true love. And let me tell you this. Hopefully, if you're awake, you're already convicted this morning, right? We're like, well, I've, I've struck out in verses 1, 2, and 3. Hopefully, we're already convicted. Let me, let me just tell you this. If you're a believer in the Lord, you love the Lord Jesus, let me tell you this, your love and my love is always going to be lacking in degree. But the quality of that love in your heart that God has placed in your heart is for real. That's what 1 Peter tells us. I don't have time to go there, but 1 Peter basically tells us we have the DNA of God's love in our hearts when he calls us to be born again. 
the Spirit has poured His love into our hearts. So brothers and sisters, how, how richly blessed we are that God has loved us. He's poured His love into our hearts and our love is always going to be lacking. But let me tell you this, God never runs short on love. God's love never knows degrees. Its quality and its degree is always perfect and flawless. Just as we sang in several of the hymns this morning. So know this this morning, if you are convicted, you say, boy, I fall short in love. Run back to the love of God, right? Run back to the one who loves you and who has sent his son to die for you and who continually renews us and equips us to, to, to continue on in love as we walk here below. So this love of God is always perfect. How does God describe love? You know, Christian love, Jesus' love, is higher than just natural love. I think that's an important distinction. That because all mankind are created in the image of God, even unbelievers can have a natural kindness, a natural affection towards family members and friends, can outwardly do some nice things. But the love of God is deeper. It's richer. It's fuller. The love of God in our hearts as we live it out is not just mere sentimentality, it's not just based on emotions, but it goes deeply, deeply into our hearts. So notice how he describes love, and we won't get through all of this today, hopefully just through verse 4. He says, love suffers long. Love is long-suffering. Well, this, this tells us from the start that love is going to cost us something, doesn't it? It tells us from the start, love is going to, cost us something. Love is patient. It is enduring. It's long-suffering. Now, some people are easy to love, aren't they? Maybe your personality just kind of meshes with them. You kind of see things generally the same. They never really cross you. They never really annoy you. They never really bother you. You say, boy, I love that person. And you probably do. And then some people it's going to require a little more sweat. You know when you see them, I've got to roll up the spiritual sleeves here, Lord. I've got to do some praying because help me out. You don't see things eye to eye sometimes. They do rub you the wrong way rather frequently. Your personalities are different. But I don't have an option. I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm called to love. I have to love. This is God's word. Love suffers long. Now, some people, and sometimes we might be loving towards someone, and then they hurt us, and they disappoint us. We say, well, I'm going to back up. I'm going to close off. That's not love. Is that God's love for us? <laughs> the first time that we, we miss the mark, the first time we fall short, God says, I'm going to close up. I don't love them. No, love is going to cost us something. Love puts up with stuff. Forbearance is one word the Scripture uses in Ephesians and in Colossians. So love doesn't have this attitude, this spirit of one strike and you're out with me, pal. Right? You hurt me once, I'm done with you. You offend me once, no, we're not going on. It doesn't demand perfection of other sinners. Love doesn't demand perfection of other sinners. See, mercy is involved. Grace is involved. Do you appreciate the mercy of God towards you? 
the mercy and grace of God, that great mercy and quality by which God treats us better than he owes us. In which God treats us better than we deserve. His mercy that comes to us and does not give us what we deserve, but has compassion and and pity on us. So if a holy God who has no sin is willing to have long-suffering love towards those who still sin and struggle, how much more should people who still sin and struggle have long-suffering on other people who still sin and struggle? You follow me? Like if a holy God never sins, flawless, if he has mercy on me, how much should I, still a sinner, have mercy on other sinners? And so we're made to appreciate God's mercy. So, charity suffers long. This means that love is willing to graciously endure annoyances, imperfections, and even sins when others sin against us. Now, this doesn't mean, let's clarify, this doesn't mean that there's never a place for confrontation. There's never a place for rebuke. That's often, or at least sometimes, part of love. But there's a whole lot that we are called to endure, and that we can endure, as Peter says, that love covers a multitude of sins. So mercy, or or love, suffers long. It suffers long. Think about Jesus. I think about Jesus as a wonderful example of this. Were Jesus' disciples always just, just top shelf? No, you read the Gospels. That's one of the things we love about the Scriptures, is the Scriptures are honest, even about the so-called good guys. And so you read the Gospels, and you don't find Peter just always right on target. And you don't find the rest of the apostles just always full of obedience, and they've got everything just right. What do you find? You find men who love God. They truly love God. They'd sacrificed and left all to follow Jesus, and yet, what do you still find? You still find these disciples with embarrassing flaws. You know that Jesus had to teach the same lesson several times to his disciples. Remember the one about when they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And I think it's the book of Mark. It, it always makes me chuckle that they've been walking in the way and they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And then Jesus comes and says, hey, what were you all talking about back there? He knew. He knew. He said, let's, let's bring this out. Let's, let's get this out in the open. And so he teaches them there, and I believe another occasion. And then what are they arguing about the, the very night that he's betrayed? The night of the Lord's Supper, what are they arguing about? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And man, that might have been for us been a good time to get that whip out and just drive them out like he did in the temple. But what did he do? He got up. So guess what, fellas? I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to show you how to be a servant. I'm going to show you how to live at one another's feet. And of course, it blew them away because here they were just arguing in their pride. So Jesus uh, didn't cast off his disciples because they still had imperfections and flaws. His love, his love was patient. It was enduring with them. Let's get it down to some practicalities in our lives. How healthy will a marriage be without long-suffering? I mean, if you're not Christians, that's, that's bad enough already, but let's get, let's get two believers who are married. What do you find? I mean, we love each other. We've still got a lot of blemishes. Still got a lot of flaws. Still got a lot of annoyances. Still imperfect. Still ones that are living with it. Well, how well is it going to work if I'm demanding perfection? If I, I have a one-strike-in-your-out policy for every little thing? If, I, if I'm always annoyed, always offended, always bothered? But it works well when love suffers long. Not that you never talk about things and work things out, of course. Communication is a huge part of it. But 
suffers long. What about us as parents with our children? Do we demand perfection? You know why that's not a good idea? Because God hasn't demanded it of us in order to keep loving us. That's a pretty good reason right there. And this is real. I heard someone say this before, and I think it's so true for us as parents with children. It's, it's, it's right for us. Of course, there's extremes. You know, some are too lenient and some are too strict, and we're probably all trying to find that happy medium. But I think this is true, that we should expect our children to fail. Now, kids don't go home and say, hey, Mom, I just blew it, and Brother Timothy said I could do that. No, no, there's no, no excuses there. But we should expect them to fail. And we don't have to look any farther than the mirror to understand why. Because we look in the mirror and we see that we fail the Lord day by day. And so, yes, we correct. And, yes, we keep teaching. And, yes, we instruct. We must do that. We must maintain order and discipline. But we do it with a heart that's, that's tender. We do it with a heart that understands. We do it with a heart that's long-suffering. Because we know ourselves that we fail continually. What about in the church? Long-suffering. In the business world? Long-suffering. Are you known as the person at work that, man, do not cross that guy? Do not, don't cross him. Are you known as the fellow or the lady that's patient? You might have high standards, but you're patient. You're easy to get along with. Why? Because there's love in your heart. You love other sinners. You love other imperfect people just as God has loved you. I was in the tire shop this week. It's not the first time I've seen this kind of thing happen by this fellow in the tire shop, one of the employees. I'm sitting there for a long time, so I hear a lot of stuff while I'm waiting. And this man comes in, a customer, and he's, he looks kind of, he doesn't look real clean. All right, he's kind of disheveled and maybe he needs some social skills. And he goes out, and this employee just, just goes off on him, just, just goes off. This guy, this, this, and this. And I thought, man, I wonder what he says about everybody else who goes out of this place. Maybe he's having a bad day, but I've seen it a number of times. Why do they have that request? Why does this customer want this? Maybe he's had a hard day. I don't know. No patience. I don't have any any patience for your flaws. I don't have any patience for your annoyances. I don't have any patience for your stupidity, we often say. But then we look up at our Lord, and we see how long-suffering God's been with us. We see how many times that God forgives us of the same mistake, of the same sin, of a God whose love endures, and it's, it goes over the long haul. And now we're motivated. Now we're convicted. Now we're motivated. Now we want to give love in that way to others. So love suffers long. Isn't it good? Isn't it good? You experience this in the church or in marriage or in a friendship. Isn't it good to be loved? when you can't get anything right that day. Isn't that a mercy? (laughs) Thank the Lord they still love me. They haven't bailed out on me because I'm struggling. That's the kind of love that God has for us, and that's the kind of love that we're to have towards others. So charity suffers long, and charity is kind. The next one is. This kind, the word kindness is used several times in the Scripture. This is a different Greek word that's translated kind. The only time it's used is here. And it really has the idea to be useful, to be useful. So when love suffers long, that's kind of the holding off, right? That's the, kind of the negative. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put up with your weaknesses and with your failings. But the positive here, love is uh, kind, so love is, is disposed to do good. So love is useful. So it's actively seeking to be a blessing to others. That's what we can say, kindness. It's actively seeking 
to do good to others, again, for Christ's sake. So sometimes we have the attitude, at least I do sometimes, I'm just going to do what I have to do to get by. Don't ask anything extra of me. Just let me do the bare minimum. But love says, what more can I do? Now, selfishness says, what can you do for me? Right? What can be done for me? Love says, how can I actively bless whoever I'm with, whoever I'm around, whatever circle that I'm in? How can I actively do good in Jesus' name to those round about me? Love suffers long. That's the negative. Love is kind. That's the positive. It's pouring itself out to be a blessing to others. Jesus said, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus had this spirit where he comes, not just saying, what can you guys do for me? But he comes to pour himself out in salvation and bringing salvation to us. So that's how we follow in kindness. Charity suffers long and is kind. Next, it says that love envies not. And I want to spend some time on this one. Love does not envy. Love does not envy. Envy, the word here, translated envy, is the idea of a a warmth of feeling, a passion. But it can be positive or it can be negative. Here it's obviously negative. We'll look at some places in a moment, hopefully, where it's used in a positive way. So here's here's a warmth of feeling, a passionate feeling against someone, against someone. In Acts 7 and verse 9, it quotes, it uses this same word, and it speaks there when Stephen is recalling the history of Israel. And it talks about how that the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. Moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. So I got, I said, let me go back to Genesis and read that again this week. And what do you find there? You remember the story. Jacob has these 12 sons. Joseph is the favorite, which is obviously not very good parental policy, but Joseph is the favorite. The rest of the brothers, they hate Joseph because of that. You can understand legitimate desire to have the approval of your parents. You know what envy often does? Envy can take a legitimate desire, and it overblows it, and that's where you get into trouble. Well, it goes beyond that with Joseph. Not only did Joseph, was he especially loved by his father, and he's really a type of Christ in that way, his brothers also hated him because Joseph began to have dreams. And in these dreams, and God was communicating through these dreams, he was, he was basically giving a prophecy that Joseph is going to rule over you. And the brothers hated that. I don't want you ruling over me. And so they hated Joseph even more when he tells them about these dreams that are obviously a a picture of Joseph ruling over his brothers. And so his brothers, they don't want to be ruled over. They don't want this guy in front of them. And they don't want that, so they envy Joseph and remember, and that's also understandable, right? But it takes over their heart. So look at what envy uncontrolled does. You know the story. They sell their own flesh and blood as a slave to go down into Egypt kill an animal, put the blood of the animal on the coat of their brother, take it to their poor dad, and basically lie and say, sorry, Joseph's dead. And they see their father mourning. And guess what? They have it on their conscience for a long, long, long time, as Genesis will tell you. Envy uncontrolled. Look at Saul and David. You remember? David kills the giant. The ladies are singing and dancing in the streets of Israel. Saul has slain his thousands, and David has slain his ten thousands. Saul didn't like that. He wanted to be the top dog. 
He wanted the admiration of the people. He wanted the praise of the people. And so Saul is filled with envy towards David. As you read through 1 Samuel, you find that Saul became a madman. He took his armies all over the wilderness, all in the mountains to search for David to get rid of him when David was really no threat at all to him. Envy controlling the heart and the mind can lead us down an awful, awfully dark path. Now look, we're going to have envious thoughts, aren't we? We're going to have envious thoughts. Like every other sinful thought, we can't avoid those thoughts or those inclinations or desires coming our way. Our job is how do we respond to them? Do we check them or do we let them go? Do we let them take over? So this sinful envy is a, is a passionate feeling against someone because you don't get something you want. That's, that's, that's the bottom line of it. What about you? Have you ever had envy? Maybe it's the person at work that, it's like, man, there's no way they deserve that promotion. I'm the one who did most of the work on that project, and they got the, they got the, the praise for that. Or maybe it's like, ah, those people, they, things always go their way. You know, they never get sick. Their kids never break their legs. They always just get a perfect deal for their house. That new truck that guy's driving, if he gets, should have one, I should be able to have one. Things always go their way. And I hear I'm puttering along and I have hard times and I'm suffering or, or I'm single. They're married. They're happy. I'm not. I don't like them because of that. Somebody has health problems. They're always healthy. They always feel well. Here, I'm, I'm old and they're old. But they got way more energy than I got. I don't like them for it. Sometimes with... Um, some of you ladies ever say, ah, oh, here she comes again. Hair's always just however you ladies want your hair to be. And the nails are just right. And she doesn't have the skin problems I have. I, you can tell I'm not talking your language. I'm doing the best that I can. But you can fill in the blank. And then the talking starts. Yeah, but let me tell you about what she said the other day. And did you see how that when she was eating, she had food stuck in her teeth? And that's what envy does. So you see somebody... You don't like their success. They have something you want. And if we're not careful, we begin to tear them down. Their words, tear them down, hurt them. See how ugly our hearts are. See why we need Jesus. A passionate feeling against someone because there's something I want that they have. Could be envy at other spiritual gifts. That's what was going on in, in uh, Corinth. Maybe preachers, right? Man, everybody always amens him. He has a big church or whatever, fill in the blank, envy. Whereas a heart, the heart of love say? A heart of love says they're healthy, they're being blessed. Thank God for that. I'm going to rejoice with them in that. This brother's being used by God in a great way. I'm going to praise God for that because the goal is Christ. It's not me. This person's beautiful. I'm happy for them. May God use their beauty for his glory, whatever. The, the goal is not me. The goal is I'm, I want God to be glorified, and I want that person to be spiritually edified. I want them to do well in the Lord. So let me show you the, uh, the, the, the positive side. If I've got you depressed, let me show you the positive side. This same word is the Greek word zeloo, if I've, if I've pronounced that right. It's the same word used in a good way in the same book. Look in 1 Corinthians 14. In verse 39, it's the same word, the same Greek word, verse 39. Wherefore, brethren, covet, or zeloo, to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues. 
Now, the whole context of chapter 14 is this, seek to edify. And Paul said prophesying will edify the most. So basically, he's saying there, have zeloo, have a strong desire to have zeloo, to have prophecy, so that you can spiritually edify. It's the same word that's used in our verse this morning, 1231. Covet the best gifts. Desire those best gifts. And if, if Paul means it here in a positive way, it's desire these best gifts so that you can spiritually edify. So that's the opposite, right? Sinful, sinful envy, sinful zeloo is focused on a selfish desire or a legitimate desire that's taken too far. But righteous zeloo, righteous envy, righteous warmth of feeling towards something is focused on blessing others and serving and building them up spiritually. So what are you, the bottom line is this, is where's my desire? Is my desire pointed, is the compass of my desire pointed toward my own selfish desires? Or is the compass of my desire pointed towards God and his glory, the good of others, the spiritual building up of his kingdom? There's another Zeloo that I have to mention in Revelation 3 when he's talking at the church at Laodicea that was lukewarm. And here's what he said. He said, be zealous. Have some envy for something. He said, be zealous to repent. Now that's some good kind of Zeloo right there, isn't it? So I'm passionate about repenting of my lukewarmness, repenting of my selfishness, and blessing others for the glory of God. You know how freeing that is? You know how freeing that is? To walk in love, I'm not so worried about me. I'm more focused on Christ. And I'm looking at this person not for what I can criticize them about or what I can be angry about their success or whatever, but I'm looking at them, how can I bless them spiritually? How's their soul? That is love. And then finally, we'll close with this one. Charity suffers long. Charity is kind. Charity doesn't envy. And then finally, charity vaunteth not itself, or is not a braggart, and is not puffed up. In other words, love and pride don't mix. At least they don't mix well. And that was a problem here at the church at Corinth, wasn't it? They were puffed up. In chapter 4, when Paul was addressing this issue in verse 7, he said, For who maketh thee to differ from another, and what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst not receive it, why dost thou glory or boast as if thou hadst not received it? In other words, what makes you different from another person? What, your salvation, your spiritual gifting, your equipping, your outward success, what ultimately made you to differ? It was the mercy of God. So you have no reason to boast in that. Now, to put it down to the bottom line with, with this one, is that when I have love toward others... I don't want the spotlight on me. I want it on the Lord. When I have pride, I am blinded to seeing God as I need to see him, and I'm blinded to a heart of serving. When I'm puffed up in myself, and I'm full of my own praises, and I have too high of a view of myself, I'm not in a good position to worship, and I'm not in a good position to serve. So love... And pride. Love wars off, wards off pride. Love battles against pride. Because it's, I don't want you to see me. I want you to see the Lord. And I want to serve you. So look at this passage on love. And hopefully we'll look at it more the next time. We see what a high calling that God has for us. No wonder the Holy Spirit puts this chapter in here to this church. Sandwiched between this discussion on spiritual gifts. 
You can have all the giftings, church at Corinth. You can speak in tongues. You can have great knowledge. But if it's just making you proud, it's no good. You can even do outward great deeds. But if you're not suffering long, you're not forgiving, you're not seeking to do good to others, you're happy for others' success, not envious, it won't work. But oh, if we walk in love, listen, the church can be a beautiful, a beautiful institution, a beautiful place where the body is ministering one to another. We're all doing it as unto the Lord because love is controlling our heart and not our own selfish desires. May God give us grace to press on in this. And let me just say this in closing. Chapter 14, verse 1, after 13, the whole chapter on love, what does it say? It says, follow after love. So let me encourage you, this week, this week, you're going to fail in 1 Corinthians 13. I am too. 14.1 says, keep pursuing it. Follow charity. Keep running after love. Let's pray.